I have known Lance for quite a few years, and uh, it's just such a gift to be one of his friends. Got to know Lance and Amy probably most when they were living in Camrose. And there's one day that I was visiting Camrose, and Lance and I were going for a little walk, walking down the street, and we were passing a senior's home. And there was this raucous kind of wild chanting on the other side of the fence that we were walking past, almost kind of like a celebration. Um, they were chanting 11, 11, 11. And we didn't really know what was going on. Um, curious, curious to find out what was going on on the other side of the fence. And uh, so it was a, a wood fence, and there's a little hole with the opening. And so Lance knelt down to look through what was going on on the other side of the fence, put his eye up to the fence, and there's a stick that came out and poked him right in the eye. (laughs) And he went reeling backwards, and then they started chanting, 12, 12, 12. Well, of course that's not true, but in my imagination it could be true, which means... I feel like it's an invitation uh, into imagination, and that's, that's what we are called to do. That's, that's actually why this place exists, because of the imagination, uh, what we think being brought into reality, something that's tangible. Um, I, I, the only authority that I have to speak up here is my love for Lance and Amy and their kids, and my admiration for Artisan. I've admired this gathering for, for years from a distance. And I so admire Nelson and, uh, and Scott and Lance, the gifts that they have. Just in the last couple of days that I've been here, have had snapshots of just how much they care for all of you. And what, it's just such a blessing for me to see that, witness that, how much they care for their families, how much they're loved by people. And uh, I just... I just want to remind you, they are such a gift to all of you, and, and way beyond all of you as well. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from the one who died for me and for you and rose to life on the third day, never to die again. You're going through a, a series of practicing the way, practicing the ways of Jesus, being an apprentice of him and what a what a great theme, what a great series. Maybe the the pivotal event in the Old Testament is the exodus. Two words, ex out, like exit, and hodas, way or road or path, journey, adventure. And so it may not come as a big surprise that when Jesus spoke of being the way. He used that term, I'm the hodas, I'm I'm the path, I'm the journey, I'm the camino, all of those things. And he is, he's the the journey, he's the way. The first exodus, the road out, was the, the road out of slavery, the road out of Egypt. Jesus is the road, the way into freedom, into life, into beauty and goodness. Jesus is also God's way into humanity. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a word that drips with meaning and story and, uh, and past and compels us into the future. 
apprenticing the way, the, the hodas, the road. As apprentices, we will eventually, as apprentices of Jesus, will eventually stumble into his stories, into his parables. I love Eugene Peterson's reminder of the effect that his stories have in our lives. Eugene Peterson. Jesus' favorite speech form, the parable, was subversive. Parables sound absolutely ordinary. Casual stories about soil and seeds, meals and coins and sheep, bandits and victims, farmers and merchants, and they're wholly secular. Of his 40 or so parables recorded in the Gospels, only one has its setting in church, and only a couple mention the name God. As people heard Jesus tell these stories, they saw at once that they weren't about God, so there was nothing in them threatening their own sovereignty. They relaxed their defenses. They walked away perplexed, wondering what they meant. The stories lodged in their imagination. And then, like a time bomb, they would explode in their unprotected hearts. An abyss opened up at their very feet. He was talking about God. They had been invaded. Jesus continually threw odd stories down alongside ordinary lives and walked away without explanation or altar call, Then listeners started seeing connections, God connections, life connections, eternity connections, but the parable didn't do the work. It put the listener's imagination to work. Parables aren't illustrations that make things easier. They make things harder by requiring the exercise of our imagination, which, if we aren't careful, becomes the exercise of our faith. Love those words. Apprenticing the hodas, the way, the journey. Apprenticing Jesus. Being with him, becoming like him, doing and believing what he did and what he believed. It really calls for our imagination. It evokes something in us. The disciples once went to Jesus and they asked him, why are you doing this? Um, why, why are you speaking this way? Why are you telling stories? And they did it, I think, because it didn't seem like it was being very effective. Like, Jesus, I think people aren't getting what you're saying. Um, I, I don't think you're teaching very well. And so they asked him, why, why this way? Why do this way? He said, here's the answer. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Then he quotes the ancient prophet Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their ears, hear with their, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, here's the unsettling thing about those words for me. It's that parables can go one of two ways. Uh, it, it can bring understanding. It can bring depth. Or it can actually reinforce faulty perceptions. Uh, 
what you've always thought about God. I always knew life was like that. Yeah, figures. That's, that's how God is. So that the little understanding we may think we had is actually even lost. Or, or we gain an understanding, exponential understanding. And that's Jesus' desire to bring us to a place of understanding. His parables place us into a posture where we're dependent on the one who's telling the story, on, on Jesus, the teacher. His stories birth an interactive dependence into us on him. Each parable brings us back to the one who first told the story, the one who opens eyes and ears so that we all see new things, so that we live a new way of life. So it's in that spirit, the spirit of Jesus, that I share the parable Jesus told, Matthew 22, I think it's printed for you in the bulletin. And in many ways, Jesus is telling this parable to answer the question that was asked of him. By what authority are you speaking these things? By what authority are you doing these things? And he tells them some parables, and this is one of them. Matthew chapter 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. He said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen." This is one of those, those readings, those stories that after you read it, you can say, this is the gospel of our Lord, but you can say it, this, this is the gospel of our Lord, as in question. Uh, I'm struggling to hear the good news here. Well, may our imaginations be evoked Who's the king in the story? Uh, The king who's quickly angered. Uh, The king who's offended. The king who sends out an army to burn and destroy a city. Uh, The king who's sarcastic. Who's the king? At least in my Bibles, the study versions, 
the notes always say something like, well, it's, it's God. This, this is God. This is the king. And he sends out an invitation to come to his wedding banquet. Is that who the king is? There's a scholar out of Yale, Marty Aiken, and he's, for me, kind of done a 180 in kind of thinking this parable differently. Um, he says, without a doubt, the first hearers of this story, when Jesus told the story, told the parable, their minds would have instantly gone to the Herods. You know, King Herod. That, that's who Jesus is speaking of here. It was King Herod, the, the great, who when Jesus was born, wanted the Magi to go find out where this new king was. Remember? And he was threatened. He told the Magi, come back, report, report back to me so that I can celebrate this king. Well, the Magi knew this wasn't going to be a celebration, and so they didn't return to the king. The king was furious. The king, in his feeling of threat, had all the babies, two and under, slaughtered because of his fear of being toppled as king. That was King Herod the Great. His son, Herod Antipas, who isn't often called a king in the, the Gospels, Matthew does in Matthew chapter 9, calls Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, a king. He's the one who, as a celebration gift, had someone's head, John's head, decapitated, served on a platter. These are the kings that the hearers of Jesus would have thought of when he talked about this kind of a king. That's where their minds would have gone. Who in their right mind would decline the second invitation to the wedding after they've seen an entire village burned at the refusal? They've witnessed the fury of the king. Was this truly a celebration? Or was it a facade? a sham, a fraud, a counterfeit gathering. The guests are only there under threat of death by not responding, coerced by fear and fire and, and death, violence. But there's a disruptor in the story that Jesus tells, a, a guest who isn't like the other guests he wouldn't pretend. He wouldn't cave to the king's fury. The king called him in and looked at him instantly. Called them wedding clothes. How come you're not wearing wedding clothes? But the speechless guest saw them not as wedding clothes, but as costumes. The presence of this guest exposed the truth. And it's his presence that incited the violent rage of the king. Friend. Sarcasm. How, how did you get in here without wearing wedding clothes? He didn't play the part. As I read the parable, I, there's something in me that says, speak up, defend yourself. But he didn't respond to elitist threat. Luke's gospel, in those hours before crucifixion, records, on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. 
When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been waiting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. In Matthew's Passion account, he records more than any other gospel writer the silence of Jesus. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But Jesus was silent. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You say so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave them no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Did Jesus tell a story 2,000 years ago that can only be accessed by us now if we engage our imaginations? that can only be connected to God in the context of his passion, that can only be understood by being with him as as an apprentice, to see him as the teacher. Jesus, the unrobed guest, was different from all the other guests. He wouldn't wear a costume when it was wedding clothes, wedding garments that the others were wearing. It wasn't truly a wedding celebration. He wasn't coerced by power, position, or threat. He didn't use power to dominate. Though his father would give him 12 legions of angels at his disposal. He didn't even have his followers defend him. Though they were ready to fight. Jesus, the word, made silent. The speechless guest who was bound hand and foot, victimized, taken outside the city gates, fixed to wooden beams, thrown out into the darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth, all to expose the hypocrisy of the world's systems and to reveal the untainted love of God. The economic representative, Herod Antipas, the religious agent, Joseph Caiaphas, political governor, they colluded to crucify the unadorned guest. How do we stand before one another, but before the world? in our power-thirsty systems that value threat and control as a means to coerce? How do we stand before the world, before each other, when by most measures we have no means to coerce through power? As apprentices, we first need to have this love, this, this stooping, condescending love that washes feet minister to us. To be with Jesus, the hodas, the way, the road, the unrobed guest, to have him reveal and remove our costumes, we've probably all had the experience of finding ourselves in a parade that we don't really want to be a part of. But somehow by the sheer gravity and the motion and the people, we find ourselves moving in that same rhythm, almost without thought. 
And then there's a disruptor, somebody that helps us see things differently, and we think, wait a sec, what, what's going on here, and what am I doing, and I don't know if I want to be a part of this. Maybe we've been like those wedding guests. We felt caught between the choice of what seems like certain death on one side and pretending on the other. Maybe we've been wounded, trapped, coerced, threatened by the economic, religious, political powers. It's to us, we need the salve of Jesus. I have a friend who was asked to be in a wedding party, so he went to the bachelor's party and went there, and they were, they were playing cards for a while, and then he found out this, this friend was, is a follower, an apprentice of Jesus. He claimed not to do it very well, but he was there at the party, and after a bit of time of uh, getting to meet the other people in the, in the wedding party and the other folks that were there, quickly found out that there was going to be female entertainment that was going to be at this, this party. And, and just like that, in that moment, he, he felt trapped. Um, he knew it wouldn't be honoring to his wife, and he didn't want to be there as a follower of Jesus, an apprentice. It just didn't... He, he felt instantly like he wasn't wearing the right clothes. He, he felt trapped. He didn't want to didn't want to dishonor his friend, but he knew he couldn't remain there on the other hand. And, and so he, he just shared that he needed to leave before this all took place. And it elicited from others ridicule directed in his, his way. And in many ways, he, he became speechless. Things that were being lobbed at him were framed, and he, there was just no way to answer any of this. And he, he just felt trapped and alone in the wrong clothes and in, in, in a bit of irony that could only be God. As he was leaving the party, he, he met the dancer at the door and was the one that opened the door for her. We at times feel as though we're wearing the wrong clothes, and we feel trapped on one side and trapped on the other. Words from a Sufi poet. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage who has to duck his head when the moon is low drops keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. The man, the, the woman, small man, small woman, builds cages for everyone they know. While the sage who has to duck his head when the moon is low drops keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. You and I, we encounter small men and small women. But at the time, rarely do they seem small to us. They seem to have power over us, influencing us. They might have titles like king or queen. We who feel trapped by systems, defined by expectations, caged by constructs of others, the sage is dropping keys all night long. The salve of his salvation is freeing. And when we hear the clink of the keys, we look to see that it's him 
The sage is with us in that space. We need his mending, his good news for the poor, his freedom for the prisoner, his recovery of sight for the blind, his release for the oppressed, and the staggering, authentic celebration for the time of the Lord's favor. No costumes needed. His salve ministers to us and then ministers through us. His good news restores us and then it compels us. His freedom gathers us and then sends us. His celebration inspires us and then empowers us. As an apprentice, becoming like Jesus, we're transformed on the way, the journey. My favorite book, my favorite all-time book that I have not read is the book titled Too Pagan, Too Christian. Never read anything in the book, but on the title alone, I love it. The premise is this, that as you apprentice Jesus, if you follow Jesus, there will be some who say, your pagan friends will say, he's, he's too Christian. She's, she's too Christian. And your Christian friends will say, he's too pagan. She's, she's too pagan. Too pagan, too Christian. I have a friend named Carl who lived in the Middle East for 12 years. And he's just got outlandish stories of God working in his life. Stories that I listen to them, I think, you, you can't make this up. He was, he was in the Middle East when the American forces went into Iraq. Was that, I think it was 2003, 2003, 2002. And he was gathered with some friends and they began to pray. And as they were praying, they kind of sensed and were reminded that Jesus in the Gospels showed up in the places that the religious leaders least thought he would be. So, for instance, if, if the leaders thought that he would be in the temple, he wasn't in the temple. He was somewhere else. If they didn't think he was at the temple, then he was at the temple. And they thought, our religious leaders in the U.S., Carl's American, they, they don't think Jesus would be in Iraq. Let's go looking for Jesus in Iraq. So literally days after the statue of Saddam Hussein had been pulled down, they, they went into Iraq, they went to the city of Basra. And they, they pulled up in their vehicle in Basra, Carl jumped out, and he, the first pe- person he met, he said, who's in charge here? And he said, in the, in the Arabic world, you always knows, know who's in charge. Everybody knows who's in charge. And so the, the first person he asked, they said, that's easy, that's Sheikh Ali. And Carl said, I'd like to speak with Sheikh Ali. So within moments, he found himself in a vehicle with a stranger that he did not know driving towards this mosque. And he said it was a huge mosque that would rival any kind of uh, North American Christian campus, I guess. And as he, as he got to that gathering... He walked into the mosque and there was a cleric conference going on. It was Sheikh Ali who was at the front and he was talking. He was talking and then he saw that these guests came in through the back and he, he stopped and he went over and he personally greeted them. And Carl says, you know, I just have to think about it. How many, how many of our gatherings in America would do the inverse? If a, if a Muslim came into the gathering, would, would the person who's speaking stop what he was doing and just go and personally welcome him. 
He said, I, I don't think that would happen very often, but that happened for him. So Sheikh Ali came over to him and asked them the question, what, what are you doing here? Which was a fair question of an American in Iraq that time of, of what was going on in the world. He said, why are you here? And, and Carl said, well, I'm not very good at it, at following Jesus, but that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're looking for Jesus here in Iraq. Have you seen him? And Sheikh Ali said, well, you know you can't see him, right? And Carl said, okay, well, yes, yeah, right, but if, if he was here, what would he be doing? Where would he be? And Sheikh Ali talked with all of the under sheikhs, and uh, Carl said, it's kind of great in that culture, there will be a definitive answer that comes out of the talk. And so a few minutes went by, and the definitive answer was Sheikh Ali saying to Carl, if Jesus was here, he'd be helping the poor and helping kids. And if Jesus would be doing that, we, we should be doing more of that too. Would you help us do that? And so Carl began to join Sheikh Ali and all the people there in serving the poor and ministering to kids. And Sheikh Ali said, the city of Basra is mine and I give it to you. And Carl says, to this day, he's been a man of peace and he's honored his word. Every time he goes to that city, he's welcomed and renowned. And he has freedom to move about and do the things that he sees Jesus doing in that place. Jesus shows up in our lives, in our culture, in our world, and for goodness sake, even in his own stories, where we don't think that he'd be, where we don't expect him. Doing what Jesus did, believing what he believed, is being transfigured. Practicing the way of Jesus is to believe that we don't need costumes. I've been trying to learn that my whole life, and I still haven't arrived. I'm still on the way. I'm still journeying. It's to believe we don't need costumes and to somehow invite others into the space and freedom of not needing them either. I want to just give a, a baby step. Like a, I thought, how, like, I want to set the bar as low as it can go from my life so that you can definitely know, I, well, I can do that. Um, once a year at our church, we have, we have a, we call it Servant Appreciation Sunday. And what we simply do is we have, in worship services, when people come in, we have, uh, we have pancakes and sausage, and we let people eat while we have service, while we're doing worship. And by the way, it's my kids' favorite Sunday of the church year. Um, I like that on one hand. On the other hand, I feel like I want, I want Easter to still be a little higher than, than this Sunday because they get to eat pancakes and have sausage in service, and it takes place in our kind of our gymnasium. And it was at one of the tables, one of the services, I sat down, and there was a, a man that was there, and I, I saw that he didn't have pancakes, and so I just said, have you, have you had some pancakes yet? And just by the grimace on his face, I could see he wasn't pleased. Um, and instead of, instead of recoiling, I tried to press in a little bit. I said, oh, this Sunday is my kids' favorite Sunday. They love having pancakes in, in worship and sausages, and it's, it's great. And he just looked, he just had this demeanor. He was shaking his head, and he was angry. Um, I'm a nine on the Enneagram, and if you know what that means, I'm a peacemaker. 
and like I don't, I don't like conflict, and I, I wanted to fix it for this guy. I wanted to, you know, but I kind of knew this wasn't, this wasn't going to happen. So the only decision that I, I could make was to not let him influence me. Like that was, that was the bar I had to cross. And that I could still have joy, that I could still smile, even looking in his direction when he was very upset that we were in church having pancakes and sausage while we sing. This isn't from Jesus. But I, th- I think it is from Jesus. And so I could celebrate, even when he, he wasn't. That's a practice for me, Enneagram 9, the way God made me, that I have to, I have to practice every day of my life. It'll look different for you. But, but you still have those practices. Apprenticing the way of the unrobed guest, wearing different clothes, learning that the displeasure of others can lose its influence over us. I just want to say that artisan, uh, as a church, you're doing this. You are a different church. I commend you. Uh, I bless you in that. You don't have to be like any other church and keep walking the hodas, the way, the road. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. There's no other church like you. Apprenticing Jesus, wearing different clothes. Uh, my wife, Claire, when we were, we were looking to have kids, she had three miscarriages before we had our first uh, Josiah, and then we had three more miscarriages after him before we had our next child, Eden. And uh, it was in one of those scenarios, one of those miscarriages, that um, it was a Saturday and Claire started bleeding. And it was just a, it was a, it was a struggle that day, and she just said to me, I, I can't go to church tomorrow. And it's, there's, just no, there's no way. Emotionally, I'm a wreck. I, and I just want, I want resurrection for this baby and I didn't have a choice. I had to go to church. Um, I, I guess I had a choice. We always have, always have a choice. I, but I did go to church, our church. We have friends and mentors who pastor a different church. And Claire thought, I'm just going to go there. I'll be anonymous. Don't have to talk to anybody. And I just want Don and Ruth to put their hands on me and to uh, pray for resurrection for this baby. That's the only thing she wanted. And so Ruth prayed for her um, with grace and travail and goodness and beauty. And then, uh, then Don prayed for her. And when Don prayed for her, after he finished praying, he looked at Claire and he started laughing, which was odd. He started laughing and he said to Claire, Claire, I can't tell you what I've seen, but I can tell you you'll be undone with great joy. She left. I got back home that day, and she told me everything that took place. And she said, well, what, like, what does that mean? Does that mean the baby's going to live? I said, I, I have no idea what that means. I mean, they weren't my words, first of all. I have no idea what that means. We, th- we think we know what it means since then. But, but those were different clothes that Don was wearing. He was, he was, he was laughing when when Claire was crying. And I sometimes wonder if that's the kind of thing it means for us as apprentices of Jesus. 
not being different for a different sake, but just hearing a different music and moving with a different rhythm and having less influence from the systems that we find ourselves in so that we could maybe laugh when others cry and maybe cry while others celebrate. Wearing different clothes might mean these things. It might mean we're silent when others celebrate, celebrate when others see failure. If we exercise our imagination from Jesus' parable, we'll begin to see how entangled we are with him in God connections, in, in life connections. For you, it might mean staying attentive to the places where people would not want to be if they were truly free of threat or addiction or coercion or expectation. Wearing different clothes for you might mean that you're a disruptor of facades, an exposer of threats, a liberator of the oppressed. It could mean not battling force with force or when others take out a soccer ball and kick it, you not kicking the ball back, but taking out a tennis racket and hitting a tennis ball back. Not battling force with force, but finding the hodas, the way of the Spirit in the midst of the desert. Wearing different clothes could mean living uncoerced, but living compelled. Not being influenced by systems, but being willing to enter into the system for love's sake. Wearing different clothes might mean for you that you have a label, lobbed your way, too pagan, too Christian. Could mean you have to duck your head when the moon's low as you drop keys for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. Apprentice Jesus and wear different clothes. Have courage in Jesus and leverage everything to him and also have his courage. Believe in Jesus and also believe like Jesus. If you have ears to hear, then hear. The knowledge of the secret of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. You have it. And by Jesus' own word, you'll be given more and you'll have an abundance. The parable of the wedding banquet. I don't know if, about you, but for me, it's now, it's now an, odd, it's an odd title for the, for the parable, for the story when it's framed to the silent guest. It's not that Jesus isn't into weddings. It's that he, he wants the real kind, the one that lasts into the resurrection, the kind with true celebration, the kind with no costumes but clean garments, the kind of celebration free of coercion and fear, the kind filled with delight and music and dancing. Another name is, is worship. In Paul's words to Timothy, reflect on these things. I'm confident the Lord will give you insight into all this. He'll give you imagination. Ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.